Well, you're about to find out I've had a very dull and unexciting life. Because <laughs> I, I fear I have a dull and unexciting message. I love being at this place. The best place to train for the ministry, the best model church that you could learn from, the finest leaders. And I am so glad you've come and I get to be here. And I'm so honored uh, that I have the privilege of preaching to you. Now, you've already had your opening week. So they've had all the messages on getting along with weird roommates. How many of you have it? Well, never mind. I won't ask you. And not being homesick and obeying the rules and doing what you're told and having a good attitude. And I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. It's a false altar. It's an altar of Jeroboam's own design and device, it tells us in the previous chapter, the verse right before I just read. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall they offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon them. Not what you normally think of happening at an altar, people dying and their bones burning. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar saying, lay hand, hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar also was rent. And the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again and became as it was before. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I'll give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half of thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned, not by the same way that he came to Bethel. Now, there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. And their father said unto them, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon, and he went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak tree. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee. Nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. And he said to him, I am a prophet as thou art. 
And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Read the next phrase aloud with me, please. But he lied to him. Say that again. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and hast eaten bread and drunk water in the place of the which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water, thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. And it came to pass, after he had eaten bread and after he drunk, that he saddled for him the ass, to it for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way. And the ass stood by it. The lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, it is the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord hath delivered him unto the lion, which hath torn him and slain him according to the word of the Lord, which he spake unto him. And he spake to his son, saddle me the ass, and they saddled him. And he went and found his carcass cast in the way, and the ass and the lion standing by the carcass. The lion had not eaten the carcass, nor torn the ass. And the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God and laid it upon the ass and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his carcass in his own grave and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. It came to pass after he had buried him that he spake to his sons, saying, When I'm dead, then bury me in the sepulcher wherein the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria and surely come to pass. Lord, I pray that you guide me and help me and direct me by your spirit. I'm the very best I know at the place in your word where you want me to be for this body at this time. And I pray that you'd use me to do what you want done in all of our hearts. I pray that I would say nothing that would displease you and nothing that's unnecessary, but everything that you want said. And I ask you to bind the devil and those fallen spirits, unclean spirits that do his bidding and keep them from snatching away from our heart soil the seed of your wonderful book. Open our hearts, draw us to yourself, accomplish your purpose, and bless all that's done. We'll thank you in Jesus' name for everything you do. Amen. Fifty-two years ago, I was a freshman in college. I was 16 years old. I got out of high school a little early. I wasn't smart. They were just tired of me and said, go on. I uh, met a lot of people. Went to a big school. I had about 5,000 students when I was there. 
Some of the people I bet are pastoring independent fundamental Baptist churches, using the King James Bible, winning people to Christ, living a godly life. Some of them went to jail. Some of them went way off in the world, became drug addicts. And some became businessmen and lost all interest in spiritual things. Some pastored for a while and then turned aside. Some switched Bibles and their ministry is unrecognizable now as you compare it to what it once was. Young men often ask me, Brother Willette, would you give me any advice? I almost always tell them two things. Number one, I say, know the Bible. I've never said this publicly, and I'm not sure it's true, but, but maybe, just think about this, and you can correct it if I'm wrong. Maybe a good idea, you don't change any doctrinal position, any biblical philosophy of life and ministry that you were taught by the place God sent you to learn until you've read your Bible maybe 15 times. Here's what happens. People read books about the Bible and they change what they think of the Bible. I've never met anybody who said, you know, I was reading the Bible and I realized as I read the Bible that God wants us to have another translation. You didn't get that reading the Bible. You got read what somebody said about the Bible. I don't know anybody who was reading the Bible. My friend Gene Rowell in Columbia, South Carolina, he said no 80-year-old grandmother reading her Bible ever became a Calvinist. <laughs> Nobody became a Calvinist, I don't think, just reading what the Bible said. They read what somebody said about the Bible. And if you don't know the Bible pretty well yourself, you won't know for sure whether what they say is right or not. Because it may take one verse may interpret it in a particular way, but there may be 10 verses that help you understand that verse doesn't mean that. If you don't know those 10 verses, you won't be able to answer it. Number one, I say know the Bible. Number two, I say hang around people who have the right stand and a happy spirit. It's not enough to have the right position. I want to hang around people who have the right disposition. A lot of grumpy fundamentalists out there. A lot of nasty new evangelicals out there. A lot of people just unhappy, and they want to spread their gloom and unhappiness to everybody. Now, I'm, I'm probably going to get in trouble for what I'm about to say here. Some of you will be figuring out who I'm talking about, and I really don't care. I'd, I'd say the names if they wanted me to. When I got out of college... I had been influenced by some people that, that led me to believe that God could use me. That made me think that I could pastor a church where souls were being saved and lives were being changed. I'd seen God change lives uh, all my life. My dad ran the Detroit Rescue Mission. Built the building they still use. It's the largest mission in the world today. Last I knew their budget was $20 million a year. My dad built the foundation that they're building. And I saw drunkards come and get saved. And their lives turn around and see them become happy, married, productive members of a local church. I always believed God could change people's lives. I still believe God can change people's lives. I was in college. And the teacher said, in a class of preachers. Some of you think you're going to go out of here, pastor a great soul winning church, run a fleet of buses, see all kind of people saved. And everybody laughed. I didn't laugh. I was sitting next to 
John Nelson, Dr. Ed Nelson's son. Dr. Ed Nelson pastored a great church in Denver, Colorado for 30 years. Still alive, 97 or 8 years old, I think. And I looked over John Nelson. I said, what's so funny about that? He said, I don't know. I never did find out what was so funny about that. I probably would have forgotten the incident, except after I'd been at our church a few years, I got a notification from the insurance company, and they said, you're running five buses, so you now qualify for a fleet discount. Dr. Asmussen often says, you're the same person today that you will be five years from now, except for the books you read and the people you meet. I suspect he would concur with me that to be more encompassing, we ought to say the books you read, the blogs you read, the podcasts you listen to. I got out of school. I was a youth pastor for two years. I went to Bridgeport when I was 22 years old, 1975. They had about 50 people on a Sunday morning, about 20 on a Sunday night, about 12 on a Wednesday night. The budget was $395 a week, and the offerings had been $200 a week. So they're close. <laughs> Nobody wanted to go there. Saginaw had the highest per capita crime rate for violent crimes of any city in America. Eight years running, still a very violent place. Our bus has been shot. Our bus worker has been shot at. Riots have taken place on our property because rival gangs rode the buses and started fighting each other. Policemen had to come and break them up. One time a kid almost stole a police officer's gun. Just grabbed him from his holster. One of our assistant pastors jumped him and averted a disaster. But man, it was a fun place to minister because you could see God save all kinds of people. It was exciting. God was good to us. And we were seeing God work right away. I'm not sure why I'm saying this. I don't know if I've ever said it in a sermon before, but it was Thursday. I was to start on Sunday. A little house on the church property where my wife and I lived. It was not a nice place. They did their best. There were cigarette burns in the carpet when we first looked at it and had no bathtub the first time I looked at it. It didn't bother me, but my wife likes to take a bath every couple of weeks. There was somebody's ashes in the basement. I don't know what the protocol is when you find other people's ashes. We threw them out. <laughs> Maybe right or wrong, that's what we did. And I wasn't even started yet. There was an old man in our church. Old man. He was 62 years old. I was 22. He was old. And I'm working, getting stuff set up for my wife, putting up shelves and moving things around. And he comes over and he knocks on our door. He was one of two people in that church that went out soul winning regularly. His name was Fred Arndt. And I'm there in my sweaty clothes. And he said, hey, preacher, you going soul winning with us tonight? And I said, sure. I threw a suit on. I went to the office, rummaged around, found some years-old visitor card. Found some, I knew where the streets were. I went out, and in the kindness of the Lord, I met the Partlow family, and Gary and his wife trusted Christ, and their three teenage sons trusted Christ, and all five of them walked down the aisle to make a profession of faith in Christ my first Sunday as pastor at First Baptist Church. Amen. I was excited. God was good, man. It was fun. And they asked me to go to some meetings. They had these meetings, mostly... Bob Jones, Maranatha guys had these meetings. 
And at these meetings, they would tell you what was wrong with everybody. Now, they were usually right about what was wrong. And they'd have resolutions, and we're against this, and we're against that. And they'd stand up, and they'd preach against this guy and that guy, and they, they, were, they weren't wrong. And there's a place in the Bible for that. And as a young man, I said to a preacher friend of mine, I'm glad they're taking a stand, and I'm glad these things are being dealt with, but is anybody getting saved? Is anybody got a way to reach people that we could use? Anybody building a Sunday school class? Anybody seeing some lives changed in the ministry? And I decided I would not associate myself with those who made it their life mission to find out what's wrong with everybody else, whether they're on this side or that side. There was a paper, the man who wrote it to friend of mine. He's a nice old guy. He comes to our church once in a while. I'd give him some money when I was pastoring. I'd give him some money when he would come by. That's probably why he came. And he had a paper and in the paper he had a section called Did You Know? And did you know that? And what he would do is he'd go around to places. He'd come here and he'd go to your bookstore. And if he found any book by an author he didn't think was really solid, fundamentally he'd write about it in his paper. Because after all, we will never be able to do the work of Christ successfully unless we know all the bad books in everybody's bookstore. So I'm just going to give you some thoughts these two days. I'll give you an outline. I don't know if the sermon's any good or not, but it's a nice outline. And I'll give you more applications tomorrow, but I think there's a lot for us to learn in this story. Here's the thesis of it. A guy comes under the instruction of God to warn against a false altar. It's a terrible altar. Jeroboam has just divided the kingdom. He's taken the ten tribes in the, 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 uh, the north, and, and uh, they've separated from the two tribes in the south, and he's afraid they'll go back to Jerusalem to worship and want to go back and live there. So he builds two golden calves. Well, there's a novel idea. That never happened before in the nation of Israel's history. And maybe it did, but it worked out so well. And he builds his own altar. The Bible says uh, it's an altar. Um, he, he had devised a feast himself, ordained it himself, made his own altar. He decided he wanted to do ministry differently than it had been done. After all, this was a new place and a new day. And you couldn't do it the old way God had told you to do it anymore. And God sends this servant of his to cry against the altar. And he said, Joe, it's going to happen. This altar is going to fall apart. Ashes is going to come out. And King Jeroboam doesn't like that. And he says, grab him. His hand freezes. He can't move it. And he says, please ask God to help me get my hand back. And the man of God prays and he gets his hand back. And then Jeroboam says, hey, come on to my house, man. I'll give you a reward. I'm the king. I got a lot of money. I can do something for you. And he said, well, I can't. He said, God told me don't go back the same way. Don't eat anything. Don't drink anything. And he does really exactly what God told him to do. He's journeying back. He stops to rest. He sits under an oak tree. And an old prophet, a man, 
in the same vocation as him, apparently serving the same God as him, the same calling as him, says, hey, come home and eat with me. No, he said, I can't. God told me not to. No, no, he said, it's all right. He said, I have new information. I know some things you didn't know before. An angel told me it was okay. But he lied. Hey, did you know preachers can lie? People who say they're men of God can lie. People who are involved in ministry can lie. You say, how do you know? You know if you do what I said, number one, and you know what the Bible says. So I want you to notice a few things. I want you to notice the title of this man. His person is unknown. He's never named. But his position is undeniable. He is called a man of God 15 times in 31 verses. No one in the entire Bible is called a man of God any more than this prophet. If anybody in the Bible is a man of God, this man, by God's designation, is a man of God. He's not a bad man. He's a good man. He doesn't have a bad heart. He has a good heart. He's not trying to disobey God. He's trying to obey God. He wants to do the right thing. And he's given a task. His task is to cry against this altar. It's interesting. He doesn't address Jeroboam. He addresses the altar. See, sometimes we preach against a biblical, an unbiblical philosophy, and people get upset because they believe that philosophy, and they say, you're picking on me. Hey, here's another freebie. Don't be a snowflake. I... You're going to hear this. Well, I was in an independent fundamental Baptist church and somebody was mean to me. Oh, well, then you better be a Catholic. Good grief. I was in a public school in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, the art teacher walked up, saw there was paint on my face, and she slapped me in the face. Public school. She said, Don't paint your face. I said, ma'am, I didn't put that on my face. Helen Soika painted my face. Helen Soika, fat little Russian girl with pigtails. And she looked at her and said, Helen, did you do that? And Helen said, now she's just trying to help me. Anything you put on my face that hides my face is better for my face. And the only guy goes to security, they say, please leave your mask on. We saw the picture. We don't want to see the real thing. And... When Helen Soika admitted that she had put the paint on my face, the art teacher slapped her twice. So I'm going to start a ministry exposing art teachers. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what's wrong with all the art teachers in the world because that hurt me and that was done in front of other people and I just, I don't know if I'll ever recover from that. Shut up. <laughs> Grow up. Man up. Yeah, you're going to be hurt. The Bible tells you that in the world you shall have tribulation. But please distinguish between an individual's behavior and the beliefs to which he subscribes, which may or may not be biblical. He's got a task, and he goes out, he has a powerful message. He cried against the altar. It says that in verse 1 and verse 4. It wasn't a sissy message. It wasn't a wimpy message. It wasn't the dialoguing. It wasn't the sharing time. He didn't stand up and say, well, you know, it may be possible that some of the design on this altar could perhaps be slightly improved uh, so that it'd be a little closer to the way God originally intended. No, he cried against it. 
Altar, altar, hear the word of the Lord. Powerful message, prophetic message. He said, Josiah is going to come and he's going to deal with false priests here. Do you know that prophecy would be fulfilled in 356 years? If that prophecy had been made when the United States was founded, when we did the Declaration of Independence, 1776, it would still have 111 years before it would be fulfilled. Hey, here's just a little thought. You want to see people saved, and you will, and you want to see people discipled, and you will, but don't ever feel like what you see is everything God is doing. God's doing things you don't have any idea of. I hadn't been at our church very long. I went out every afternoon knocking on doors, and I was maybe a mile and a half from our church. I knocked on the door of a lady named Doreen Sitsima, middle-aged lady. She let me in. I started to go through the gospel with her. I got about halfway through, and she said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. She got up, and she went into her front hall closet. She started rummaging around. She said, a man was here a while ago. He told me the same thing you're telling me. She said, I didn't do it then. She pulled out an envelope, but he, she said, he said, if I ever wanted to, I could pray this prayer. And she showed me an envelope with the sinner's prayer written in my dad's handwriting. My dad had preached revival me to that church a few years before I became the pastor. He'd gone out souling with the pastor. He knocked on that lady's door. She didn't get saved, but I went by that day, and she did get saved. And she came to church and walked down the aisle, and her three children walked behind her, and they got saved. Uh, I had to do her funeral, her husband's funeral. I saw those children live for the Lord to some extent for some years. Now, my dad thought that visit was not a success, <laughs> but it was. Just a few years later, it's a powerful message. It's a prophetic message. It's a proven message. He said, the altar's going to rend and ashes will come out. And then the Bible says, verse 5, the altar rent. And the ashes poured forth from the altar according to the word of the man of God, which was given by the word of the Lord. I like the timing of this. You know, he comes and it happens. Jeroboam, the king, is there offering incense on that altar right when he's there. Verse 1, Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. God always has excellent timing. We don't always appreciate it or understand it, but he always does. And then there's a testing. The first thing happens to this prophet as a result of his obedience to God is that he is indicted. Grab him! Lay hold on him! We would say, arrest him! I'm not going to let you get away with prophesying against this altar that I have built and the people that I now lead and the golden calves that I have made for them to worship. The king didn't like the message of the man of God. And you see him condemning the prophet, and you see the consequence. The Bible says that his hand, which he put forth against him, end of verse 4, dried up so that he could not pull it in again to him. I have bad knees, and every once in a while they buckle a little bit. I was supposed to have them replaced 20-some years ago. I'm not against it, but I'm still functioning, so I won't do it if I don't have to. 
But, but can you imagine, you, you go like this, you, and, and all of a sudden you can't move your hand. It won't bend, it won't come back, it won't go down, you're just stuck. It'd be a little awkward to go through life like that. Just, just a little difficult. Need an empty seat in front of you in chapel? Kind of tough to get the door with the other hand because that hand's in the way. Really, really awkward if you work at Costco or something like that. Have to eat all your in and outs with one hand. And he says, help. Now, Jeroboam doesn't repent. Jeroboam doesn't believe the message. Jeroboam doesn't turn back to the true God. Jeroboam just wants deliverance from his trouble. Remorse wants me to fix my problems and get back what I lost. Repentance wants to be right with God and nothing else matters. I'm afraid if I'd been this prophet, I'd have said, huh, I... I didn't make your hand get stuck. God made it get stuck. I didn't, I didn't tell it get stuck. You shouldn't have messed with me, man. <laughs> you shouldn't have gotten away of the message of God. You just see what it's like going through life with your hand like that. But this prophet showed amazing compassion. Hey, don't ever get to where you look down on people because they're sinners behaving like sinners. Sinners don't need scorn. Sinners need a savior. Sinners don't need somebody to say how bad they are. Oh, they need to know their sin is offended a holy God, but he loves them and wants to deliver them from it. But they need somebody to tell them there's salvation available. He does real well the first part of the test. You ought to shut up. I'm going to arrest you. He does great. But in the second part of the test, he's not indicted. He's invited. Hey, come on home with me. You know, you'll see both things happen in your ministry. There'll be a time people are really against you, and there'll be a time everybody wants to sidle up to you and have you join their deal. I started out, Bob Jones graduate, been to pastor school. I was too much one way for the one crowd and too much the other way for the other crowd, and I didn't fit any place. Dr. Ed Nelson, I mentioned earlier, told me to go to pastor school, and I did. And then God began to bless our church. I started out, people say, oh, you're that church is against dancing and against movies and against drinking. But then people started getting saved and politicians started wanting to come to our services. And you had one come a couple of days ago and get saved, praise God. And uh, places that had kind of ignored me said, oh, we'd like you to have our group in. And we'd like to get to know what you're doing there. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted to invite me. And a lot of people who pass the test of indicting fail the test of inviting. Man is a tribal creature. He likes to belong to something. And that's why they have associations and fellowships and groups, secular and spiritual. 
Now you do whatever you think the Lord wants you to do, but uh, my deal has been I never joined nothing. I did get kicked out of one of those associations. Our church was in one when I went there and they expelled me, but I never joined one. Because you know what? I belong to the family of God. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I find wonderful fellowship and marvelous friends all over the country and all over the world that were united not by what we joined, but by who saved us and to whom we belong, not to what we belong. And then, then the story gets really sad. He's done so well. He's passed the test of indicting. He's passed the test being indicted, being invited. And now he meets an old prophet. And he said, I'm a prophet too. I'm a prophet just like you are. And an angel came and said, it's okay. Come on home, eat bread, drink water. It'll be all right. Hey, let me ask you a question. If God tells you one thing and somebody says that an angel told them something else, who should you believe? Well, you did almost as well as the Democrats at their convention a few years ago. Let me try that again. You can answer out loud. If God tells you one thing and somebody who says they know God tells you something different, whom should you believe? God. Believe God. Let God be true in every man. Uh, and this man was a liar. Now, here's the deal. I'll stop here and make some more applications, Lord willing, tomorrow. Most of you will not get in trouble because you read some atheist. You're not going to read Christopher Hitchens or Stephen Hawking or some worldly philosopher and go, wow, I think that's what I ought to believe. Their error is really obvious. Most of you are not going to be led astray because some drug addict or drug dealer stops you when you're out and say, hey, man, you're on nickel bag. I got some here. Most of you are not going to go bad because you decide to start drinking booze. Some of you will. And there are, there are fleshly temptations out there that the devil can use to get us. Please don't think any of us are immune to any of them. But most people in this room who don't end up the direction they're heading now and don't stay on the path God has placed them on now are going to get off track because of the influence of another good man. Good people lead good people astray. So I want to challenge you to do something early in this school year. The vast majority of the students here are good godly, sincere. They, they have faults and they're learning and they're growing, but their heart is to do the work of God. But there's some people here, and they're not here for the same reason as the rest of you. Their parents made them come. They didn't have anything better to do. They had a girlfriend or a boyfriend here that they wanted to be around, and so they came. They really don't care about chapel. They don't really care about serving God. They really don't care about anything except doing what they want to do with their life. I have a message for you folks like that. You that are in that small minority. God loves you. <laughs> and we're glad you're here. Because if you give God half a chance, he can turn that unhappy spirit around and make you a joyful servant of his. And some of you came here for the wrong reason may leave with a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not mad at you. 
We believe you're here in the providence of God, even though you think you're here for some other reason. God has another purpose. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It was not you that sent me hither, but God. But I want to say to the rest of you, make a decision. You're going to be nice to everybody. You'll converse when you need to with everybody. You'll be polite to everybody. But you'll only have close relationships with those who have a heart to please God. And when those inevitable comments and criticisms are made, some of them valid, you could go back after this chapel time and go to your dorm room and say, that was a weird message. True enough. Different than anyone I've ever preached here. Just what I think I'm supposed to do these two days. But when somebody says that, we say, well, you know, it's interesting what the Bible said about such and such. Even if you don't like the message of the messenger, you can like the word of God. And you be one of those who, when they say, what a stupid rule. Now, let me just tell you, when I was in college, they had stupid rules. Really stupid rules. You could not speak to a member of the opposite sex uh, on campus after six o'clock. That was a rule. At 6 o'clock, some strange metamorphosis took place, and all communication was ungodly. 5.59, go ahead. 6 o'clock, no. Dumb rules. You could not use an iron in the dorm room where I went to college. Now, the ladies could. The men could not. You had to go downstairs to the basement. There's an iron and an iron board. You iron your clothes downstairs. Go on the third floor. Go on three floor, four floors. Three, two, one, basement. They're stupid rules. Uh, I, I, I'm now 68 years old. And I think some of them were probably stupid. When I was in college, the song, Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul, did not check. That was too worldly. You have a wicked hymn book. <laughs> stupid rules. But you know what? God put me there and he put me under those rules and he used them all for my good. Because I got news for you, young people. When you get out in the world, there's even more stupid rules. You want to know about stupid rules? Live in California. <laughs> and the people who go around eyes, <laughs> very miserable, unhappy people. So what I would recommend you do is smile, laugh to yourself, and just obey the stupid rule. But watch out for the ones always going to criticize it. Because it is amazing where you can actually end up. He was a preacher, evangelist. Joined our church. His messages were not terribly filled with biblical content, but he had a tremendous ability to connect with people. And he'd usually have half the crowd respond at an invitation. He was tremendous with teenagers. He was in police work. He got me involved in police work, got me being a police chaplain, took me out on a couple drug raids. And as time went on, he got more police and less preacher. He used to teach the recruits how to shoot. He's the best shot with a handgun I ever saw in my life. 
he'd throw a skeet in the air and hit it with a handgun. And he got a job at a small police department outside of Detroit, and he got a partner. And he left his wife, and he married that partner. And then he wound up going to jail for inappropriate behavior with his new wife's daughter. Spent nine years in prison. He was as independent, fundamental, Baptist, King James, soul winning as anybody in this room at one time. Nobody ever thought he'd end up where he did. Nobody ever thinks they're going to mess up. We, we have a, a large addictions ministry at our church. We have the largest home for addicts of any independent Baptist ministry in the country. And there's not a one of them said, I'd like to be an addict. But you're probably pretty safe from the things I just mentioned. But there's probably some good people, if you're not careful, going to lead you astray. 